everyone. You loving the cold weather? I love it without the rain. <laughs> hey, I just want you to know, it may be a surprise to some of you when I was hired as a youth pastor that I attend this service. And I just want you to know how much I look forward to being with you on Sunday mornings. I love just how grace-filled you are. I was talking to Elliot about this is a wonderful service when mistakes happen. Uh, We can work them out (laughs) for the contemporary service. And I love the songs in here. I love the worship. I just love your spirit. And um, I just love the seasoned spiritual maturity in here. And I, I sit at the feet of the seasoned spiritual maturity in here and learn from you. And it's such a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning to give of Elliot a break. Uh, The title of the message this morning is, Are You Stronger Than a Fifth Grader? And some of us may have seen that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? But this is, Are You Spiritually Stronger Than a Fifth Grader? And we're going to open with the Great Commission, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Moses, a little bit about Peter, and then we're going to bring all three together in the end... At the climax, the end of the message, when I share with you the results of last Sunday, Life Path Living Water Day. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Of course, these were Jesus's planned last words, Uh, but listen to a few of these famous unplanned last words. Uh, I hope I haven't bored you. Elvis Presley in his last press conference. It is well, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. George Washington. That was the best ice cream soda I have ever tasted. Lou Costello. <laughs> And then the most famous one of all time, hold my beer. Anonymous redneck. redneck. (laughs) Uh, When I was campus pastor at Northland Christian School, I got to teach Texas history one year and I had a of a young lady in seventh grade, and I gave them one of those critical thinking assignments where they had to write about a Texas, an early Texas explorer. And they had to pretend, you had to pretend that you were the explorer, get in character and write a letter back home to your friends and family to describe what you have discovered. And one of these, uh, so this is a famous last word as well. I don't even remember which explorer this young lady chose, but the final words of her letter was, and then I died. (laughs) And I I thought about keeping that. I should have kept that assignment, but uh, I guess the minister, the caring heart in me, I was just like, I can't do that to her. Uh, But I will share the story. Absolutely. So, of course, these are Jesus's final last words. And maybe you have experience 
the final words of a loved one. And, and maybe some of us in here will actually have that rare chance to say and choose our final words. And of course, we would all agree that those words would be incredibly important. I mean, you're not going to be complimenting someone's new shoes, new boots on a cold winter morning uh, when you have a chance to say your final words. These are Jesus's final words in the flesh. And that is the only way his disciples have known him. And I just want to paint a little picture for you of what it was like for them when they heard these final words. Uh, Look again at Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. All planned final words are carefully chosen and communicated. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So about 40 days have passed. There's 11 apostles remaining. Judas has hung himself. Old Testament passages, and of course it's not the Old Testament to them, it is scripture, are being fulfilled around every corner. They're putting this puzzle together, all the pieces. And Jesus chooses the time and place. And of course, Jesus chooses a mountain. And that is significant as well, because of course, a mountain made you closer to God. And of course, Jesus himself is God. But it also sent a message about the importance of what Jesus is about to say. And we just want to fully be aware that the 11 would have gone to this appointment with an expectation that Jesus is going to say something incredibly important and we will be ready to listen. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. And I want to spend a little time here because I've always thought this is strange to hear this. And I wanted to dive a little deeper exactly what this meant. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Worship, understandable. Worship is understandable, I think, in this case. But the doubt throws me off a little bit. And I just want you to think about your own life for a moment. And just uh, listen to these questions. Do regrets in your life ever sap you of energy? Do mistakes that you've made occupy your headspace? Do failures generate any spiritual paralysis in you. And just maybe God has already removed your sins as far as the east is from the west and is ready to give you your next spiritual assignment, appointment, or mission, but you do not hear it. Why? Maybe because we are tirelessly trying to remind God of our brokenness when he has already forgotten it. I want us to look a little bit about, look a little bit at Moses. And I want us to think about that burning bush scene and how Moses ended up at that burning bush. Of course, we know that Moses was raised as an Egyptian, as an Egyptian leader, the finest in everything, in wealth, in education, uh, was Egyptian inside out. Now he knew that his people were the Hebrews. And of course, one day goes out to discover that they are being ruthlessly worked. They are slaves. They are being abused. And he sees an Egyptian bullying a Hebrew and of course kills that Egyptian. And the next day goes out again to police the scene 
and sees two Israelites fighting with each other and, of course, tries to break it up. He's been raised as a leader, right? And he discovers, you're not our leader. As a matter of fact, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Oops. Moses flees, flees to the land of Midian, where he ends up becoming a shepherd for Jethro. His father-in-law marries his wife, Zipporah, after rescuing all the daughters from a well and making sure that their flocks received water. And now he is out in the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement because though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. So when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Just like Isaiah, Pastor Elliot mentioned, covered uh, his face. But we all know that Moses didn't immediately accept this assignment, did he? Wow, he didn't. (laughs) Not even close. He goes on to make five excuses. And just listen to these excuses. And these verses won't be projected. Uh, But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God's answer, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Excuse number two, Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? That's actually a valid question because Egypt served many gods. They would want to know the name of God. And of course, God's answer, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And it's overwhelming. That should have been convincing enough because I am easily sends the statement that I am God of everything. Everything you see, mostly what you do not see. There is nothing that I am not God of. Past, present, future. But that wasn't enough for Moses. Excuse number three. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never really appeared to you? He goes on to say, throw that staff on the ground. And of course, we know it turns into the snake. Moses then picks it up. Thankfully, it returns to a staff. And then he sticks his hand in his cloak, pulls his hand out. Ah, it's full of leprosy. (laughs) Thankfully, he gets to put it back in, restored flesh. Excuse number four, that still wasn't enough. Oh, Lord, I'm not very good 
with words. <laughs> I have never been, and I am not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied, <laughs> and my words get tangled. <laughs> Answer number four from God. Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? And wow, again, excuse number five. And this time, finally, Moses doesn't beat around the bush. Tell us, Moses, how you really feel. <laughs> Moses again pleaded, pleaded, Lord, please send someone else. And then, of course, this time the excuse, God created all emotions, and there is a time and place for anger. And God exercises that, <laughs> justifiably so. Then the Lord became angry with Moses, and we know he sent Aaron. What I want you to consider, I'm sure Moses was an amazing shepherd. I'm sure he did a good job of caring for the flock, knowing where to lead them to find those greener pastures, knowing how to make sure they received clean water to drink. But that was not his calling. That is not what he was raised and designed to do and be. He's in a valley right now spiritually. He's dwelling in a valley of doubt and guilt. And sometimes we do this. We dwell in a valley of doubt and guilt and we continue to live in a place of brokenness. And we don't hear that divine assignment that God has given us, that great commission, if you will, because we are so busy focusing on our own brokenness that maybe we miss that call. Let's look a little bit at Peter now. Of course, Peter is a perfect example of open mouth, insert foot. And I would like to say that God transforms that into an open mouth, insert foot grace. Amen. Cause I know we can all relate to that. I relate to Peter. Um, I've always been the person that is usually the first to step forward. Um, sometimes that has been a blessing. Sometimes that has been a curse. Um, but I've just always been, I guess, a natural leader in the sense that I'm not afraid to take chances of, and sometimes you do fail. Sometimes you do say something that you wish you had not said. So needless to say, I really connect with Peter and all the examples. There's really few heroes in the Bible that we can get to know better than Peter. Um, and I just want to go over to remind us a few of his uh, victories and a few of his failures. And sometimes they happen in the same story. You know, it's like that person who says a really funny joke and you're laughing really hard. And the person decides, hey, I'm on a roll here. I'm going to say another joke. And then it's not funny at all when the room goes silent. You know, that person just needs to get up and leave the room on a high. Leave people wanting more like that one episode of Seinfeld. But um, Peter just wasn't that. I mean, he would say something beautiful and he would just roll with it, you know. And he would go on sometimes just to go up in flames. I want to go back to when Jesus uh, walked on the water. And of course, we know that someone else walked on the water that day that the disciples were very afraid. There was wind and waves and a storm. And to see Jesus approaching them had to have been just a surreal 
magnificent experience. Just all of those motions being felt at once, adrenaline, fear, excitement, especially learning that it is Jesus. And what is Peter's first response? It's like, yeah, I'll go walk on the water too. (laughs) You know, so he would have been the one probably to go skydiving or bungee jumping and hopefully remember the parachute. But he just goes right out there in that water. Lord, if it is you, let me come to you. And I just love that faith. I love that childlike faith. Um, But then he takes his eyes off his savior, off his source. Because let's just be real. We are so broken. We are so broken apart from Jesus Christ. There isn't any one of us in here that doesn't have a story of brokenness that just runs through our family. And Peter takes his eyes off his healer and he begins to sink. He begins to be afraid. Um, A few summers back, my family went on vacation to the Grand Canyon. And we decided to take a day trip to Lake Powell. And if you've ever been to Lake Powell, of course, it's a canyon filled with water. And it is just beautiful. The color of that water, that emerald green water that you could see through, there's no litter. And that backdrop of the canyon and all the mazes, uh, you could just spend, my goodness, a lifetime back there navigating all those canyons. And we rented a speedboat for the day. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. That's the phrase in the youth group when Rich gets excited about something is, yeah, buddy. (laughs) So little did we know there would be a storm. And little did we know that a storm can happen really fast on Lake Powell and it can become pretty intense. And that happened to me. I'm not experienced. I had a little experience with boats, but not much. And we had a storm hit and it was intense. The clouds got dark. There was wind, there was waves, there was even a life flight for someone who crashed. And I found a canyon and nestled the boat in that canyon. And let me tell you, it was tricky uh, cutting the power on the boat to let it kind of coast into that little uh, secluded area to be safe. So I can kind of relate what Peter would have felt in this moment. Of course, Peter was the first to confess Christ, that Jesus is the son of God. In Matthew chapter 16. And before we could even celebrate that moment that Jesus had the faith, he then is pulling Jesus aside and saying, Oh, you aren't going to die that way. There's no way my king is going to go to a cross. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Wow. Have you ever had that happen in your life? You get this high praise and encouragement, and it's followed by that kind of criticism. That's from the mouth of our Lord and Savior. Get behind me, Satan. Of course, the transfiguration. I want to read this one to you in Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, (laughs) a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. 
The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. This is one of those moments where Peter probably would have bet money that he had figured things out, that he was right. Of course, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And if you were a young Israelite boy and you had some athletic posters hanging in your room, you would have had a poster of Elijah and Moses hanging in your room. They are definitely heroes to you. Peter thinks that he is onto something here when he makes the decision that Jesus is equal to Moses and Elijah. Look at me, Jesus. I realize you also need a memorial. Just like Moses and Elijah, I'm going to build one for all three of you. See, I got this figured out. He can't even get the words out before God, the voice of God takes over and they are on their faces. Peter, you don't get this. Moses and Elijah worship Jesus. They are not here to get a memorial. They are here because every word spoken through them is being fulfilled in my son. And I am so pleased with him. I wonder how Peter felt coming down the mountain. And of course, the one that is most famous is when Jesus looks Peter in the eye and predicts, no, Peter, man, I'm sorry. You're not going to be as brave as you think you're going to be. You're going to deny me. And in fact, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, in the garden, when Jesus was scared, just asking God for another way, but not my will, but yours be done. And when they arrive, the temple and the uh, the, the, the leader, religious leaders and the, uh, the temple guards to arrest Jesus. We know how Peter responds. Again, he reacts without thinking. He pulls out a sword. He cuts off the ear of Malchus. Again, thinking this is going to be an earthly kingdom. Maybe not thinking at all. Maybe just afraid. But he's so ready to fight. He's still in his head. is thinking physically and not spiritually. And of course, we know he goes on to, in fact deny Jesus three times. Two times, Scripture tells us, to a young girl who calls him on it. Aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of his disciples? And then John even tells us that the third time he's confronted, it's by a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear got cut off, right? Wow. We know that Peter sobbed. He he weeped bitterly. And what does he do then? He goes fishing. Moses becomes a shepherd. Peter goes fishing. You see, uh, and we're going to, and then Peter, of course, in John chapter 21, then he gets reinstated. While he's fishing, of course, he sees Jesus on the beach. Uh, They figure out it's Jesus. Peter again reacts, jumps right out of the boat of gets to shore as quickly as he can to find Jesus has made breakfast of fish and bread. And of course, then they catch that miraculous load of fish, about 153, John tells us. And the net is not even torn. Peter's reinstated, of course, asked three times, do you love me? And of course, on that third time, Jesus uses a different Greek word for love, agape. 
Peter accepts what Jesus is doing. You can tell he's a little frustrated. Of course, I love you. Of course, I agape you, Jesus. You know that. You know I can't lie to you. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, when I take my eyes off you, I begin to sink. But you know I'm telling the truth. And Peter, of course, goes on to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. You know, going back to the Great Commission, that word doubt that we see in that English translation, the Greek word for doubt that occurs in the Greek, in the Great Commission, when Jesus says, when it says, some of them doubted. And going back here, when Peter walks on the water and Jesus gets into the boat, why did you doubt me? It's only two times. And I finally learned that in the Great Commission, it's not that they doubted that Jesus was alive again, that Jesus is the Son of God. They doubted in themselves. They doubted in themselves. That was the doubt that they were experiencing. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, defeating death gives you a certain measure of, of street credibility, <laughs> of street cred, no doubt. People tend to listen to someone who is dead and now alive and never to die again. So Jesus proclaims to be in charge of the universe here. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That would be the universe. That's everything that has been made above, below, everything you see, everything you don't see. So they're standing there looking at a man who was dead, is now alive. We showed the students on Wednesday night, the 8th through 12th grade over the last two Wednesday night. We got parental permission to do this. We showed them the passion of the Christ. And the way that movie ends, if you have seen it, I certainly suggest seeing it at least one time uh, to be reminded of the violence our suffering Savior endured. And I love how that movie ends and it goes directly to the resurrected Christ. So you have that image, that last image of him dead on the cross, taking his body down, so damaged, so wounded. So, my goodness, it's just a striking scene visually that is seared in your mind of what it might have looked like. And then all of a sudden you see the resurrected Christ, so pure, so beautiful, so completely flawless. That's who they're looking at here, right? They're looking at a man who is dead. Of course he has authority in heaven and on earth. And how intense that must have been. So Jesus proclaims to be in charge of the universe. Everything we see, mostly what we do not see. The doubt from verse 17 makes more sense when you consider that their public speaker for the day was dead now alive and just happens to rule over the past, the present, and the future. Look at Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 here. Therefore, go. He's going to give them their assignment now, their mission. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So they're kind of a, I guess this would be a Rich Reeves translation here. Jesus basically says, go and change the world. Wow. You see, God's given us a great commission, right? Go and change the world. And I just want us again to do our very best to imagine standing with these men. 
looking at a man who is dead, is now alive, without injuries, whole and beautiful and strong, just the way we wish our body would remain. And then all authority, I'm in charge of everything. I am King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by the way, I want you to go change the world. That's the Roman empire we're talking about and beyond. Not just the Roman empire, that's beyond the Roman empire. You're gonna do it. Man, they're still trying to wrap their minds around what is happening. They're still remembering all of these Old Testament passages that are being fulfilled. They're still doubting themselves. We have now learned that is completely understandable. Just like Moses doubted himself, becomes a shepherd. Peter doubted himself, went back to fishing. We doubt ourselves. We doubt ourselves individually. We doubt ourselves as a body of Christ. We doubt ourselves as a worldwide single church. Remember the message today. Are you spiritually stronger than a fifth grader? You see, I grew up in a really conservative environment. I grew up, uh, and I'm not going to say where it was, because I do look at parts of my spiritual upbringing, and I embrace them, and I love them. But it was very conservative. It was very constricting. And I made a decision for my family to take a step of faith and to embrace freedom in Christ. And I would never change that decision. Because of that decision, I am here at Life Path Church. Because of that decision, I get to be around people like Elliot, who is the greatest pastor I've ever served under, the most spiritually healthy. And for the first time in my life, I get to serve a church that I see as being very spiritually healthy. But you see, when I left that upbringing, I lost my entire network. I mean, I was once youth minister of one of, in this particular denomination or non-denomination, I was once youth minister of one of the largest churches in the world in that particular movement of believers. And I lost my whole network. I was like unhirable because I chose to take that step of faith for my family to embrace freedom in Christ. So we weren't going to move. My daughters were at Northern Christian School, and I had to get away from that environment because it was 70-hour work weeks sometimes, teaching, coaching, being campus pastor of 400 students, 6th through 12th grade, and didn't even have an assistant. And I'm driving buses too. I mean, it was overwhelming. I had to step away. And my oldest daughter has, has a digestive illness, um, so we had to step away from that. But I had no idea how hard it was that I didn't know anyone really anymore. I mean, Elliot, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, pulled my resume out of a large stack. And I wouldn't change that decision again. But for a time period, I had to earn some money. So I became a personal trainer. And you know, I coach Team Living Water. I'm an avid runner. And I, I served as a trainer, commission job at Lifetime Fitness, which was an elite. I mean, it was an elite job to get as a trainer. And everyone looks at you and thinks you're making money and you're not, you're really working hard. And you know, they thought I was great with people. I was great with people. Boy, Rich, you talked to that family 30 minutes and I even saw you pray over her. 
did you make a sale? A what? <laughs> uh, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> I was too busy listening to her daughter being in the hospital and praying for her. They didn't know what to do with me. And it's not that I wasn't a good trainer. It's not that Moses wasn't a good shepherd. It's not that Peter probably wasn't a very skilled and trained fisherman. But it's not what they were meant to do. It's not what I was meant to do. Right at the end, and this is what they would have wanted to hear. And this is what I want us to hear. Uh, Never forget this. Never forget this verse here. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They're still trying to wrap their minds around the Holy Spirit. They only know Jesus one way, not the way we know him, that he's going to live inside them. That hasn't happened yet, but they know it's coming. They don't know exactly how it's going to unfold, what it's going to look like. But boy, praise God for Peter. Because when he received that Holy Spirit, he didn't waste any time, did he? He got up and he delivered an incredible message. Uh, It wasn't in writing. He didn't plan it. (laughs) Wow, that was so Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit spoke to him on the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were baptized that day and gave their life to Jesus, and the church was born of But I would say that this last part of the verse is the key to understanding God's call on your own life. And I want to go back to Moses here, and I want you to hear this. So Moses was told he was standing on holy ground, right? Consider with me that maybe holy ground is not a place, but a perspective. Maybe God was waking Moses up spiritually. Everything, as one writer says, everything is spiritual. And all around you, I am. I am above you, below you, behind you, before you. You just need to be awakened to my nearness, to my presence, to my faithfulness, that it's not about you. It's about me through you. And you have been prepared for such a time as this, but you need to stop dwelling in your mistake. And you need to accept your new divine appointment. And yes, all those excuses you made, they are true. But notice how I had an answer to all five of them. And then some, I am with you. And even when you make me angry, I may get angry. But I'll still send Aaron to be your mouthpiece. I'll still meet you halfway. That's fine. I'm still going to love you in spite of your brokenness. And I'm going to use you in mighty and great ways. But as I define greatness, maybe not how the world defines greatness. Maybe you don't end up in a movie with Charlton Heston starring for you. But you will be great in the kingdom of God. When this basketball goal was being constructed out here, and I'm about to close with the big news. Uh, there was, there was, um, he was a big guy and he did a good job. He took so much pride in installing that basketball goal. He said there was enough concrete in that basketball goal that they would use in those windmills. And I was like, well, I get if LeBron James shows up, our goal will be in good shape then. But he then turns around And he looks at that 
And he says, what do you think about that? And I said, oh, the mosque? I said, I'm going to ask him to play soccer with us on Sunday afternoons. And we're going we're gonna to try to establish some friendships. And he looked at me and he said, you would make a terrible Marine. <laughs> and it was one of those rare moments, if you watch that show House, where I actually thought of what to say in the moment. And I said, well, good. Because I'm a pastor. And we need everyone. We need some good Marines. But we also need someone in my position for this time to extend a hand of friendship. And of course, I think we all would do that. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, the final words that Jesus said on the cross, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he released his spirit. The end of something old is the beginning of something new. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Of course, this is Paul writing. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, I am strong. For when Moses was weak, he became strong. For when Peter was weak, he became strong. For when I was weak, I became strong. For when this church was weak, last Sunday, we became strong. So I had a contest on Facebook and Instagram to see who could guess and get the closest to how much we actually raised. And do not put that slide up there yet. I will let you know when to project that slide. But hear this, Life Path. May Life Path always be a church that only takes steps of faith that apart from Jesus would fail. May we emanate the same spirit of Isaiah, and you had not even seen my message. May we emanate the same spirit of Isaiah when he responded to his commission by saying, Here am I, send me. And this is what we did last Sunday. So we had an adult winner and a student winner. And the contest was to guess how much was raised plus the matching donation from the anonymous donor. And the one who came the closest to the actual amount was a fifth grade girl. And do not tell anyone Last Sunday, when I told you that we were going to have an anonymous donor, I heard it out there on Market Street. Did you hear the big news? <laughs> so please keep this a secret for the second service. They've been waiting all week, so make them wait a little longer. Enjoy the power that you have. <laughs> but it was Abby Swearingen, a fifth grade girl 
You want me to tell you how much she guessed? I'm going to tell you how much she guessed. And right after I tell you, Tanya will put the slide up behind me. She guessed $15,000. And she was still a little off, wasn't she? But a fifth grader led the way spiritually and wasn't afraid. May we never lose that childlike faith, that excitement that we have on Christmas morning about what God is going to do next through our brokenness. For when we are weak, we are strong. 